I don't know if it's an Ashanti song, but there's like a Ja Rule song where it's like, and it's like, Shanti, Murder Inc. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Though my days are long without you. Though my days are long without you. Wow. Powerful stuff. It's um, foolish, which is something we could use to describe Felicity. Whew. Yep. That'll do it. <laughs> Hello, Allison. As we listen to the opening melody of a true classic called Foolish by the one and only Ashanti. It's great to be back. Episode three, feeling fresh, feeling alive. Here we are to discuss Felicity's surprise, a Christmas story. And just to remind our listeners, this is the show where we're going to be reliving the American Girl series one book at a time. So thanks to everyone who's listened so far. I'm Mary. And I'm still Allison. Still Allison. Interesting choice. But, you know, I respect that. So, I'm not the surprise this episode. Another surprise. I would love it if you changed your name and just were like, I'm doing that. You know who did change her name? I'm afraid to know. Yes. It's Colonial Williamsburg, which is why we've entitled this episode A Surprise Party in the Not Yet USA. That's true. You know, we're still living in these colonial times. I'm not really in love with it, but we got to do what we got to do. Absolutely. So, Allison, since we've last spoken, what's going on with you? How are you? It's been a real riptide, but a beautiful riptide. We've what, does a lot of feed- what does that mean? We've gotten a lot of really wonderful and fearless feedback from our listeners, which we do absolutely appreciate. We've had some people do some real soul searching about what it means that Felicity resonated or resonates with them. I want to quote one beloved listener who is, quote, so here for this podcast. She asks, if Felicity is the worst, am I also the worst? Wow. That's a deep and dark question that I can't answer. And perhaps this person can't answer for her or perhaps himself. But I love that they're willing to go on that journey with themselves and with us. I I gave her a little bit of foreshadowing that a beautiful surprise with this third book is that we're starting to see Felicity evolve. And it's really pleasant. And as one reviewer on Goodreads said, wow, I can't believe how completely out of character this storyline takes Felicity. <laughs> I don't disagree, but I like it. I agree. This this is my favorite book so far in terms of making me least frustrated, I guess, with Felicity as the book goes on, and we'll get into that. But, you know, I just want to say it's been a really cool week for us in terms of launching the podcast and having people have such amazing responses to it and getting in touch with us and telling us all kinds of feelings. We did hear from some Samanthas who would like to be heard and we're going to let, you know, that's happening. We're coming into it with an open mind really and truly. You know, we've heard from some people um, for whom Josefina is really important and they can't believe that she is past my time age-wise and maybe I was wrong about that. So, you know, we'll get there. We've heard from people who sent us helpfully Ja Rule images. Love that. You know, that was really powerful and Ashanti gifts and memes and some like thoughts about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've heard about, you know, like loving horses, what it means to be a horse girl, all kinds of stuff. Really great. And so we're just really thrilled to have all these people along with us on this journey because it's truly a trip. And I can't state enough how much I've forgotten about these books that I'm realizing now as I reread them. Yeah. And now that we have a much larger sort of literary vocabulary to bring to these books, there's so many layers. Like we both immediately thought this book has a yellow wallpaper moment. And that's not something we were capable of before. But blessed be we are capable of that now. Like, look, I would have been worried about nine-year-old me if I had an in-depth personal or intellectual knowledge of neurasthenia, but, you know, grad school will do that to you. So here we are, and 
can't wait to get into it. Um, before we do, I just need to say, so this week has been really important for us because we launched the show. We've heard from all these great people. Also been important because, you know, you and I have a lot of shared interests. It's not just American Girl. Um, you know, we also love pop culture, all kinds of varieties. And, you know, something happened this week that really kind of brought them together. If you would like to get into that. Yeah, I would love to. So we we have alluded to earlier, there's sort of this comparison between Felicity and horses, you know, and is Felicity a horse? And there was a lot made of the fact that she jumped over a fence in the first book. And this week, a very important man to contemporary pop culture, he also went over a fence. And that's, of course, Colton Underwood, this season's Bachelor. And again, we've said it before, like, if you're not making these connections, that's why we're here. Right, 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 right. That's what this show is kind of about, is like, we're here to, like, bring worlds together. And look, are we fans of Colton? Absolutely not. Not here from him. Do not care at all. Sincerely wish this season was over. He's kind of a potato and I'm not really, I enjoy potatoes as food, but not as, like, objects of desire on television. But here's the thing. And I know this is a little bit of a spoiler, but we're, we're past it in the show. The culture has already moved past it. Colton was betrayed in a very specific way by a person that he invested too many feelings in this week. It's Cassie, if you're not caught up. And I'm going to draw a parallel a bit later between that and the way that I think Ben betrays Felicity in a very real way in this book. Ooh, I can't wait to hear about that. I mean, are you going to get into like Colton and his lack of active listening skills, which you could argue Felicity has as well? I mean, I don't know that it's fair because he's in his late 20s and Felicity's nine. So I don't know who the comparison is unkind to, but it does feel unkind. Okay, but I'm going to push through that because I am (laughs) still really not over this scene. So if you don't watch the show, like good for you, I guess, but you're having less fun than we are. And all you need to know, not good for you. No, not good for you. Because guess what? Guess what? As this storyline evolves, Felicity is going to fight for the American revolution. Mm -hmm. And if you don't see an inevitable outcome of that, the possibility of being in bachelor nation, I can't help you. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Like marketplace of ideas, straight line to The Bachelor. I feel like that's that's what the founders maybe had in mind. Probably not, but we like to think so. But this is what is really stunning about this episode. So he is in Portugal with the final three contestants during Fantasy Week, which is when they get to have an overnight together, um, Colton and each of these three women. So he goes on the first outing. Then he has the second date with Cassie, who he clearly is really obsessed with. The producers kind of did him dirty because they invited her dad to Portugal unbeknownst to him. So the dad could say to Cassie, look, um, I didn't give him my blessing to propose to you. And I also don't think you're that into him. And Cassie basically is like, yeah, correct. So then Cassie has to break it to Colton that she's probably going to take herself out of the game and go home because she's not prepared to say that she's in love with him, which you kind of have to be willing to do if you're going to accept an even fake proposal at the end of this whole charade. And Colton kind of loses it, but it's like this really weird scene where he is so incapable of active listening or even just basic listening skills. So Allison, you be Cassie and I'll be Colton. Ready. You know, I'm really interested in maybe someday continuing this journey with you after I get my sugar bear hair endorsement. I mean, after we (laughs) leave Portugal, but I just don't know if I'm ready. And then sobbing, which I could not replicate. What I'm hearing you say is that you need me to say that I'm in love with you. I think I want to go home. I will never stop fighting (laughs) for you in this relationship. I think I'm leaving. Cut to him, basically, like, so she gets into the car, rides away, is, like, crying kind of insincerely. He goes up to his hotel room and then bounds back out and then jumps over a fence to leave this, like, middle-of-nowhere Portugal resort. And Chris Harrison, they do him dirty because he comes out from nowhere. This man is never around. 
And you just hear him say, is there a button that would open the fence or the gate? It's sad. You know, he's my favorite part of the show. You like him and you like the dads. Like, you're there for the dads. Well, they talk reason. I mean... You like an older man, though. You have really weird crushes I don't fully understand. We don't have time on the show to get into your Ryan Seacrest obsession. But just know that I have been and am still quite disturbed. Thank you. Yeah. So part of it is Felicity and Colton are making these choices that others around them are sort of flummoxed by. Yeah. And it's kind of like they just have this weird like emotional response to stuff that has nothing like does not take into consideration the situation they're in or the people around them. It's just like, well, I really need to hop this fence right now. I don't care what's happening with you. And, you know, I don't really know what the problem is. I told you what I want. And how come that can't just be enough? I have to, excuse me, listen to what you feel. No, no, not interested. No, no. indignity. It's bad. Like it's this isn't going to end well. And it's kind of interesting because at least it's unlike the other seasons. But I'm ready for him to stop. I just really don't care. I'm sick of like men being like, let me tell you how you feel. Like, no thanks. Not interested. So that's the perfect segue to talk about what actually happens in book three. Yeah, let's get into this. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Book. Let's get into the rapid recap. So I'm going to first take us through the official recap put out by the publisher, quick pause, and then I will get into very specific important facts that I think you need to know for our discussion. So here's the official recap. Felicity is invited to a dancing lesson at the governor's palace, the most wonderful honor she can imagine. Mother, I'm just going to say on the side who doesn't have a first name, period, promises to make a beautiful new gown for her. As the splendid event draws near, Mother becomes dreadfully ill. Felicity spends all her days caring for her, sadly accepting that there will be no new gown and no chance to go to the palace. No chance, that is, until a glorious surprise reminds her that Christmas tide is a time when hopes and dreams do come true. So just right off the top, we wanted to add that we're not totally convinced by Mother's illness and we have some reason to believe that she's faking it and that it's fine. Felicity, over the course of this book, remember she's nine, is really asked to step up and to really take care of mother round the clock alongside both their father and Rose. Mr. Merriman's life doesn't really change a ton. He doesn't actually seem super involved, but he does happily bankroll the dress project. Ultimately, Felicity goes to the ball and Ben, after talking mad crap about the governor and shading her so bad for wanting this at all pretends to be her boyfriend and takes her to the ball this book is nuts and totally wild and there's this one last piece which is felicity's really afraid of seeming unfashionable and seeming sort of backwoods because she lives in a colony and she sees a dress on a doll that she's told is what the governor's wife likes to wear she also does not have a first name and This doll is gifted to her. Eventually, the dress is gifted to her. And Ben is very unkind to her for what is a super understandable interest in dresses and dolls for a person of her age. Where do we even begin with this book? I'm going to tell you I really liked it. I said before I really liked this book so far the most out of all of them because there was less... 
I think for me, there's like so many weird things going on in terms of storytelling choices. I think because Felicity goes on a journey where she ends up being a better person and more selfless, that makes her way more likable to me overall, regardless of what else happens in this book. So at the start of the book, if you want to read this cynically, Ben is irritated because Felicity isn't as woke as he is in the way that he understands it and because she wants one nice thing. Is that fair? It's fair. I mean, so basically her friend, Elizabeth, who again, we're sort of like tracking, is she a good friend or not, (laughs) basically kind of makes her feel insecure because they get this invitation to go to the governor's palace and she's kind of like, Felicity, what are you going to wear to this? Like, this is going to be really serious. And Felicity's like, oh, I'm going to wear my brown dress. And Elizabeth's like, oh, um, the one that you wear to church? Um, That'll be cool because you're already so comfortable in it because you've worn it so many times. And it's like, okay, can you chill? Like, she reminds me so much in that moment of someone at school that you would know growing up who's like, oh, um, did you get that TJ Maxx? Like, oh, that's cool. Like, that's really interesting. You know, I got these jeans at Abercrombie and Fish. It's not a big deal. And hey, guess what, Shannon? It is cool. It is cool. I'm a lifelong Maxinista. Like, I will not be shamed for that. I wasn't then. I won't now. It's, I don't like that. I mean, there's, there's certain things in this book where it's like girls supporting other girls and being really good friends. But then there's also kind of low key undermining each other's situations because, The reality is, is that Felicity's dad's store is not doing well. We're told that very early in the book, that as a result of his decision not to sell tea, I think he's like three months into that choice, they're not getting a lot of business in the store. So Elizabeth probably can figure that out and also makes Felicity reveal that fact, even though it's probably already known, and then doesn't connect the dots that that might affect Felicity's wardrobe choices for this very special occasion. So it's either Elizabeth is super clueless and not in a fun Alicia Silverstone way, or she's purposefully doing this. And I just don't like that kind of underhanded, like frenemy type vibe, even though she turns out to be a very thoughtful friend. I don't like it when there's books where in moments in books where girls, I don't know, maybe it's expecting too much. But I just feel like if you have a friend who's really special to you, you try to empathize with their situation and be thoughtful in what you say to them in that regard. And honestly, no one is happy for Felicity. No, absolutely no one. She goes to the store. She's so over the moon. I find it odd that the mom is like, you need approval to go to this immediately. Like, go out in the freezing (laughs) cold to your father's store and get approval immediately. And it's like, isn't he returning home here tonight? And this isn't for like a month? Like, I don't know. Uh And there was no RSVP. Like, where's the fire? But anyway, she goes down to the store and like, she's so pumped to tell the dad and get his approval. And Ben is like, sorry, you would even consider going to this? And I'm going to say this. And and I know that we've talked about some of the classism in the, in the books. And yet Ben's comments and thoughts are always given equal weight with any other family member, which is not realistic for the period. Like his stomping off because he disagrees with the loyalists is treated as if it's a real schism in the family. And let's be candid, like someone of his social class being frustrated would not have mattered to anyone in this family. Right. Like an apprentice being irritated with something about the way things were was like, okay, it's it's also a day that ends in Y. Right. And it's kind of like, I'm sorry, you think you get to have an opinion right now? Like, that's the shock. Like, did anybody ask you? No. And so he stomps off. And we learned that Miss Manderley, again, the person whose backstory we really want, she's gotten this all set up. And so as part of their continued schooling, again, Ben isn't in school because he's an apprentice, but Felicity is getting this specific kind of schooling we learned about in book two. They're going to have dance lessons. And I actually liked this part a lot. I did too. I found this so relatable. And I think we both kind of did that, you know, I can remember reading back and I know that you feel this way too. Like I felt like a very unladylike nine-year-old or just kind of not of this world of going to like, not that I was invited to tea parties or anything of the kind, but I was not the kind of girl who went to dancing lessons. Like I started in dancing lessons 
in my first recital, I forgot the routine entirely and started blowing <laughs> kisses at the audience and then ran off stage. And then I think I joined the softball team the next year, which kind of tells a story about me, but that's another story. So I always felt very uncomfortable when it came time to being super feminine, not necessarily that I didn't want to be feminine, but that I felt like I really didn't know how and that other girls really had it figured out at a level that I didn't. Yeah. And I think they made it so that girls in the 90s or even reading it now could feel like this is relatable. You know, I think back, I would have been reading this when I was about one or two years deep into at least a five-year commitment to overalls on a nearly daily basis. And this isn't like how cool hot people wear them now with crop tops. This was like turtleneck overalls six months out of the year. Correct. I also kind of, I think most people can relate to this impulse she has where she doesn't want to wear something uncool and she wants to fit in. And as the book progresses, I do think Elizabeth does a good job of kind of psyching her up. But then newsflash, when Mrs. Merriman is very sick, they all drop out. Nobody's helping Mrs. Merriman. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into that for a second. So First of all, I just want to say on the whole dancing lessons thing, I'm really into it in the sense that it gives us scenes where it's like girls empowering other girls. But I do think it's a little bit kind of danger zone because on the one hand, these books are all about like empowering young girls to stand apart and be different and be really proud. But at the same time, here we are getting a story about someone who desperately wants to be like everybody else. And I'm not faulting Felicity for that because I actually think that's a really true kind of like microchasm of what it is to be a girl that you constantly want to be comfortable in your own skin um, even and especially if you feel different but you also really want to desperately fit in and I know I definitely felt that way at nine so I think the book captures that well but while that's playing itself out mom or Mrs. Merriman mother is sick and they visit the apothecary one day out on errands which is really fascinating and I I was I reread that section several times because I was looking for more information, but that's kind of glossed over and the greater emphasis is on the milliner and that shop because it's foreshadowing that Felicity will get this beautiful dress. But that's a bummer for us. It is a bummer because it's like we want to know more. There's also a line very early on in the book where Mrs. Merriman is trying to raise the alarm that, you know, illness might be coming in the family. And again, we've talked about how these books are really carefully written and calibrated for audiences. And on page six, there's the line from Felicity, aren't mothers silly, (laughs) you know, because she's concerned about people getting sick. And you look back and it's like, this is actually literally the most rational thing she could be afraid of. Right. In this period? Are you kidding? Like I would have left the house. <laughs> like the odds of all of you dying quite high. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, anything. I, I mean, the apple butter scene. I didn't see hands being washed. Nope. I mean, there's just so much that could go wrong all the time. If you were like... I mean, I guess, you know, like if you had a time machine, I would never go backwards because medically speaking, I'd be dead like any other time but now. And that's not that's not appealing to me. But even if I was in like perfect health and I didn't have chronic health issues, I would not go back in time because with the knowledge of everything that could go wrong, I would just be a ball of anxiety rolling around wherever I found myself, like trying to beg people to wash their hands and not trust vapors and, you know, like whatever. I could do and I'd probably be put into an asylum, you know, as a result of my panic. And I know enough to know that that's not what I want. My my question with Mrs. Merriman is, is there a read of this and is there a fan fiction possibility that she contrived this whole reason to go to bed? Because we don't get enough details, right? She's tired. She's sweaty. Yep. I pieced together a timeline. She's not pregnant with Polly yet because I've done the math. Like I've been reading the extra books. So I kind of know how the extraneous side stories happen. We're not there yet. I know when that's going to happen. Right. But I'm saying, is this her excuse with the chaos of the holidays to just collapse? You know what? I would not blame this woman one second if that's what was actually happening. No. Like, first of all, here am I in 2019, 32 years young, relatively good health. Okay. If I can like together an excuse not to go to an occasion that I remotely don't want to go to, I don't do it. I don't claim I have a fever and, you know, like vapors or whatever 
her official diagnosis might be. But, you know, it's like everyone has that day where it's like, oh, my God, maybe it's Friday night after a week long, you know, week of work. And you just think, not today, Satan. I'm not going out. I'm not going to this party I said I would go to. I'm just taking to my bed watching Netflix. There's nothing really wrong with me, but there's also nothing right with me. And I just need to chill. Yeah. Like, no shame. Something that's kind of fascinating to me about this whole thing. So I think we both, you know, in the history of medicine, it's very frowned upon to retroactively diagnose people in the past. Because, first of all, many diagnoses we have now would not have made sense then based on the way that they ordered their world and understand how their bodies worked and so on. But also, it's kind of bad form because for other reasons, you can't examine the patient. There's really no way of knowing. That hasn't stopped us on this podcast. We've come up with a mutually agreed upon diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, again, you know, I once had a professor who described another historian and he shaded him in such a not so subtle way, but he said it in such sort of deep tones that it totally flew by me the first time he said it. Someone in a class was saying, wow, how can X historian publish so many books? You know, he's so prolific. And the professor without our professor without any hesitation said, well, he writes without fear or research. <laughs> and that's really stayed with me. You know, I think also his wife has done a lot of his work. Shout out to Glenn Close. But i um, just going to say that. So I think like we've come to this mutually agreed upon diagnosis without fear or research. And I just want to say that I think we're both pretty comfortable diagnosing Mrs. Merriman as having neurasthenia. I don't doubt that for a second. And it actually gave me very brief flashbacks to if you watched Afflicted on Netflix or if you watched, and I know I'm opening a can of worms by invoking this, but the special on Lady Gaga, right? Don't get me going on that. Do not get me going on that. I won't. I won't. But I'm saying I think there are diseases particularly, and it's gendered in a lot of ways, that just push people to an edge and they essentially have to take to bed. They're exhausted beyond all point. And that binary of is this mental or is this physical isn't useful. I will say I'd be happy to diagnose Mrs. Merriman as just emotionally exhausted with everyone. Yeah. And I think it's important to say that a lot of these depictions of illness often get tracked onto what we would call female bodies. And along with that is the total kind of, not disregard, but total like incredulousness by often men in this person's life. Um, Sometimes it shows up as disbelief that there is even something wrong with them. That's not what goes on in this book, but I'm thinking about a really foundational for me piece in the history history of medicine. Of course, I'm talking about an episode of Golden Girls where Dorothy has what comes to be diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome. So real. I mean, okay, when I saw that episode, I was, uh, I want to say like 11, 12, something like that. I've since seen this episode many times. I'm sort of kidding, but not because this episode was one of the first things that I came across that took seriously both that Um, you could have uh, very real uh, medical effects of exhaustion that don't fit in the currently understood categories of disease and that you could have something very real wrong with your body and Mm. be totally disbelieved. You made me feel like a a child, a, a fool, a neurotic who was wasting your precious time. Is that, is that your caring profession? Is that healing? No one deserves that kind of treatment, Dr. Bud. No one. And that's what was happening in that episode. And ultimately, she gets diagnosed. And the sense of relief she has at getting a diagnosis and having sort of a label put on the feelings that she's having and the symptoms she's experiencing is so palpable. And that show is something I think of as purely a comedy. And it really is hilarious. And I love I've seen every episode multiple times. I know enough to know that I'm a Sophia, like in the sense that we know what American girls we are. Of course. And In that way, I was thinking about that episode and reflecting on a lot with Mrs. Merriman, where another difference is, first of all, we never get a diagnosis of what's exactly wrong with her. But we also, and what's interesting is in the Golden Girls episode, Dorothy is at the center of her illness narrative. We're hearing from her herself describe how she's feeling and everyone kind of has to adjust around her but the main person at the center of the story who's driving it who's reflecting we get a sense of her inner life is Dorothy in the book here Mrs. Merriman doesn't even get to be the star of her own illness narrative of course not she's just up in her room hanging out trying to escape probably Felicity (laughs) 
And just to give some shifts, who's taking shifts at her bedside, but just to give a little background, neurasthenia, when we use that label, is a is a diagnostic category invented in the 19th century um, by someone called George Beard, and it was designed to explain a widespread sense of exhaustion that he articulated as being caused by you know, quickly evolving evolution in society, both in technology, in, say, capitalism, and all these different in the workforce, the rise of so-called white-collar jobs. So originally, he maps it on to largely white male bodies. But then it becomes more associated with S. Ware Mitchell and the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, is being associated with women, and particularly upper-class white women, even though that's not actually who ends up getting diagnosed and treated, as recent scholarship has shown. But basically, people take to their beds, they're exhausted, there's no one surefire cause and also no one surefire cure except for people sort of taking their beds and taking what's called the rest cure. And I feel like so there's been a lot of feminist scholarship that has said that it's caused by women's dissatisfaction with their lives and their role and their limited role in their families and in society. And it, I wouldn't put it past Mrs. Merriman to have a touch of that. What do you think, Allison? I think it's interesting that it's set around the holiday time because both you and I were able to find some very recent articles that point to the ways in which, um, you know, HuffPost had this one article that said, you know, women are disproportionately responsible for making magic at holidays and it's killing some of them. You know, it really pushes people over the edge at an already stressful time. And I think once again, you know, we're looking for a dimension of mother or Mrs. Merriman that is just not going to be there because we're not there to get her story. But I think it's striking that it takes what Felicity imagines as the near death of a parent for her to grow up in a certain way. And again, we're thinking about these as being carefully written books. I'm not sure what we were supposed to take from that. Yeah, it's it's incredibly dark. I mean, I just wrote multiple times in my notes, so dark, extremely dark, very dark. And there's one passage in particular that I just want to kind of quickly go over. That's the one on, you labeled very dark. The one that's labeled in all caps, very <laughs> dark. Yeah. <laughs> this is in a scene where Felicity's mom is up in bed and Felicity's sort of taken charge of the household and she's caring for Nan and William. And they get into this conversation. They're playing with a Noah's Ark toy. And Nan says, God told Noah to gather his family and save two of every animal. But what happened to the animals and the people Noah couldn't fit in his ark? Well, the earth was covered with water, answered Felicity. So I suppose they drowned. What's drowned, said William. It's when you are covered with water and you can't breathe. And so you die, said Nan. And when you die, that means you go away to heaven forever and never come back. Isn't that right, Lizzie? Yes, said Felicity. Is mother going to die and go away and never come back, said William? No, said Felicity fiercely. She took William under her lap to comfort him. No, she said again. Mother won't die. She will be well again, etc., etc. This is so dark for a children's book. I don't even know what to say. It, I read this and sort of it snuck up on me. It came out of nowhere. I wasn't prepared for it. I think much in the way, you know, people talk about a certain category of, you know, masculine person on the internet. Don't worry, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, you know, we're supposed to think that Ben is very open minded because he supports the right cause, supposedly, right? He supports revolution. He's very interested in all of that. But the way that I read the arc of this book was Felicity has to be totally domesticated and Mrs. Merriman, too, for him to be into her again. Yeah, it's it's not a great it's because not a great I, message. He says to her at one point and remember that she's nine years old. She wants a doll. That's what I wanted. And he says, you don't know what is important anymore because she's, you know, a little bit too focused on the thing that she wants. And it was like, I'm sorry, Ben, what are you bringing to the family? Right. Exactly. Just he a doesn't lot of help. negative energy. <laughs> he doesn't help when mother is on literally what we think might be her deathbed or nope. she's like winking underneath. But we don't know. Um, 
he's he literally adds nothing in this book except except a lot of weird judgment. And the problem is there's a pall over this book because everyone in this family is already fearing a bigger judgment. And that's kind of the Christian judgment that lives in this book. It was striking to me that the Christian tones in this book are the strongest of any of the three. Um, at one point, Felicity says how much she delights in the Christmas service, Christmas Day service, and we hear a quotation from um, A Christmas Carol. But it does remind me, you know, in some ways I'm obsessed with how dark that passage was that I shared, but that is kind of the mindset you would expect people in this time period to have, that death was so much more common and a part of life and a part of their spiritual imagining of the world. That it's not uncommon to fear death and to wonder what happens after you die, but this seems to be a particular obsession of, you know, like people in this book. And I guess on one hand, that reflects kind of different colonial sources I've read and we've read that show that parents are not afraid to acquaint their children with death because they want them to make a religious connection to the afterlife. Um, like if you go read Samuel Sewell's diary, which again, he lived um, a couple decades before Felicity's family lived, there's a scene where he has his children surround an open grave and stare into it like quite young children so they can get a sense of you know, how short life is, I guess. Like to me, that's just insanely traumatizing. But um, then again, I was raised Irish Catholic and I've gone to many wakes as a young child. I just think there's so much vulnerability of children fearing death and fearing the death of their parent that comes out. So when Felicity mm. is so deeply vulnerable and Ben is so not sympathetic, it's just really striking. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, certain things change in the household because the mother is not able to work, basically. But the lesson that you take away is, you know, as a young person, and particularly as a young female person, the way that you respond to that is you take over all the tasks that your mother does. And again, it's kind of striking looking back because now these books are going on almost 30 years old themselves. I don't know if you would write it that way today. I think it's a tricky thing because I think in the time that's what would have happened, but I think it's a dangerous message for girls to read 30 years ago or even today because when I read this book, I couldn't help be struck, I think, as you were, that you know when the mother's up in bed, the father's life doesn't change really at all, and Ben's so life doesn't change at all. The dad does a few shifts, but again, this is something we've talked about before, you know, with the apple butter, the ways that different people do work and the ways in which it's very different that they're doing it all get flattened. There's reference to the fact that Rose does shifts. It's like Rose is probably doing most of the shifts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even when, spoiler alert, her dress shows up on her bed, I thought my first thought was, oh, well, Rose finished the dress. And it is a community effort, which is great because again, Annabelle helps. Elizabeth helps. I think even their teacher helps. Yeah. Yeah. I think the teacher helps, but it's just, it's not a great look that basically, as you said, Felicity has to kind of turn herself down and be domesticated for Ben to be supportive of her and, and read her actions as kind. Okay. And I want to ask this again, another plot point that I just would love to see developed by someone else. The night of the ball there's a big question over who's going to chaperone Felicity because Rose isn't home. And I was like, okay, so where's Marcus? Exactly. Like someone give me answers. I mean, we're not getting the characters or storylines we want or deserve. I'm also really upset that we didn't get any Annabelle during this book. No, because honestly, I already miss her because I think she calls Felicity on her nonsense and we need it. She 100% does. I also caught Elizabeth basically saying, oh, you should have Ben escort you because I would drive Annabelle crazy. And it's like, this is such a sister move, like to kind of, needle <laughs> yeah. you know, exactly how to get at your sister. Yes. But it's like, Elizabeth, who are you? Like your friend behavior in this book is crazy. Like I just, I don't know. So in a weird way, it kind of makes me think about one of the big causes when we were this age was WWF and saving animals and particularly saving dolphins and the animal you love the best, the panda. And it's yes. interesting because, of course, everyone had their dolphin t-shirt, their panda t-shirt. You know, that went right under the overall so perfect because you still saw the dolphin pop up, you know, over right. the bib. 
Of course. And it raises this question of, you know, how children engage with politics and how clothing is tied into politics. But the way that Ben talks to Felicity is so condescending. Like somewhere Ben is on Reddit right now. (laughs) No question. No question. I just find that whole question, his whole treatment of her and his response, his knee-jerk response. How could you even think about going to this party when the loyalists are the people who are practically bankrupting your father. Maybe it's not that extreme. He can still afford to buy her a doll and a dress, the makings of a dress. But he is that guy who's like, oh, that's interesting. You use a plastic bag at CVS. Like you mustn't (laughs) care about the earth. Or like, you know, someone who's a vegan and never lets you forget it. And I don't mean to shade vegans in my life who are wonderful, but there's a certain way that some people's politics dictates all parts of their lives and other people can separate and kind of say, okay, technically this thing I want to do violates certain beliefs that I have, but I think, you know, I would like to make an exception because of XYZ reason. She literally touches fabric twice and he says you become a foolish selfish girl it's like (laughs) all right let's tone it down like can you pause for a second and remember that it was just in book two when felicity was able to see her politics as part of her daily life and overturned a teacup for the revolution i'm sorry were you not with us in book two bro (laughs) it's not enough for him though Nothing is ever enough for him. It's like, I'm sorry, what are you doing? Are you part of some committee of correspondence junior club for like youths who wish they had like had real knowledge? I'm sorry, like, what are you actually doing? He's a person who like, he's the kind of person who after an election goes sideways, they'd be like, we talked to Ben, no last name, we don't get a last name. And he talked about the economic anxieties of being a white man. (laughs) Yeah, you know, everyone's like, okay. We get it. That's cool. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Oh, my God. He's just... I don't know. I feel like I'm warming to Felicity in book three, and I'm cooling to Ben. Of course. And there's something about this book that brings on... So this book takes place during Christmas, and I couldn't help but think about all the different kind of Christmas narratives that you could easily map this onto. So for example, like even the last page of the book, when there's sort of like this weird cutesy exchange, because again, she's nine, so it's not a romance. It's like a weird friendship that they're forecasting will be more when it's age appropriate there that could be a like a hallmark christmas movie like this entire thing could be a hallmark christmas movie down to in chapter one there's like five different occasions when someone is forced to say you know anything can happen because it's christmas but also the the journey is like strong woman gets knocked down a peg there's a lot going on in this book where i read it and i have such catholic guilt that i was like oh my god i would have spiraled if i was felicity i would have been out of my mind first of all and this is an important distinction between us i never would have gone on the journey that she's on where she really wants the dress and the doll because those things don't matter to me in terms of AG fandom. Like I'm really here for the books and for the other kind of like AG book and paper based products. So I don't understand this path of wanting to privilege like saving your doll over perhaps saving your mom's life. But it's it's like so heavy handed that to me when I read it, I felt like strong Catholic guilt about this. Like, oh, my God, nothing would be mean more than mom. But we have to see her go on that journey to get to a place mm-hmm. of there are things that matter more, which, again, she's nine. So that makes sense. And in a meta way, you know, you know, they were whispering in author Valerie Tripp's ear, like make the doll matter make it worth it and like tease it. And I probably should have disclosed this at the top of the episode and it almost feels like an ethics violation that I didn't. But many years ago when this came out, I sent in a mail order, if you remember those, in the catalog for Felicity's wintertime amusements. It still hasn't arrived. (laughs) Wow. And I I honestly, I believe in the power of grudges. Mm -hmm. It's not here. And how that doesn't shape your perception of Felicity, I don't know what kind of strong, maybe Ben could get over it. I don't know. I so, can't. like, what were the winter amusements? I don't know, Mary, because they didn't come. Wow. Okay, so I think what I want to say to you as your friend is that it's okay to hold this grudge, and I hope that the anger that you've been feeling towards Pleasant and or her company fuels you. <laughs> So a very kind friend and listener of the show named Elizabeth, shout out, thank you. She actually let me borrow um, 
her kit, which includes a Felicity play and Felicity crafts, it's not the same. This came... This came with like a little fan for when you're sitting next to the fire, which like we did have a wood stove. It came with a little lantern. I've looked it up. It came with a little wax candle with a toy you can make. It was like a very special purchase to me. It is now $180 on the internet. (gasps) I can't have it. Like, I mean, I can. I could spend that money, but I'm not insane. Wow. That's not right. Okay, it's a bigger kit than that, but that's the basic thing. The paper dolls, all of it. I can't have that now. Like, I, I mean, didn't want <laughs> – they sell the arc. I didn't want the arc. I didn't need the tea set. I was fine with all of that. This is the one that I wanted. I don't have it. If the emotional cost of this is too high, I just yeah. want to empower you to take to your bed and force <laughs> your husband to tend to you. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I am a little shocked by the cost of this, but I think they know that there's people out there like me who are still so, you know, we've talked to folks who like couldn't get things in catalogs. Right. I mean, that's an important point is that, you know, the material culture of all of this is so seductive and attractive when you see like I remember I have like such sensory memories of getting the catalog in the mail and just holding myself up in my room like wanting to immerse myself into the world of this catalog and seeing all the various different things I never took it to a place of actually getting any of that stuff I think I had the paper dolls and I'm not sure what else, but I never had, I think, a lot of the outfits. Again, I'd have to like check, but a lot of the stuff was priced so insanely that you kind of couldn't go there. So a lot of people I knew, including you, although I didn't know you at the time, would kind of hack stuff and like grandmas and moms would be like making you AG outfits. Yeah. So you know the bed that the mother takes to and that Felicity takes to, how there's basically like the drapes that wrap around as they would have in that period. Mm -hmm. My mother and I made that and we made it to look exactly like in the book. That's wild. Okay, I'm learning that we can get a Molly radio for $70. I don't think it works, but I just want you to remember that. Oh my God. Is it like Molly size or is it our size? I don't know that that's that different. That's fair. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's fair. We'll have to talk about this. The number of people looking at the Felicity Wintertime Amusements in the year of our Lord 2019, it's two people per hour. You know what? A lot of shipping orders never went out, Allison. Didn't happen. (laughs) So it's permanently retired. That's part of it. We'll talk about this some other time, but eBay is sort of where people's childhoods go to die. Yeah. And that's really sad. I'm seeing people part with stuff that I'm not prepared to part with. Like there's a lot of no. Polly Pockets out there and I don't know who's like giving up their Polly Pockets, but just take a beat on that because you may want to keep those. I'm if just you saying. think my dolls aren't safely secured in tight containers and trunks, you're insane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are sacred objects. These are sacred objects. Again, even though I'm like, I don't know, I didn't really want any of the clothes. I never desired to dress up as any of the dolls. But I do remember when when I read Felicity's Surprise, this blue silk gown that she's wearing is absolutely gorgeous. Of all the Felicity outfits, this is like number one to me. It's the one. It's the one. It's the one. She she never looks that good again. (laughs) I'm not sure we had to take it to that place, but... I'm just going to say, look, as you know, I move through the world in shades of blue. She she favors a heavy floral. And this was the one time she kind of stepped out her comfort zone. It is so weird in retrospect where they're like, oh, the governor's wife, this is what she'll be wearing. And everyone's like, oh, okay, let's dress our nine-year-old that way. Yeah, it's like, you're nine. That's insane to me. Like... Not to make another kind of out of the box pop culture reference, but another one of my favorite 90s TV shows was Designing Women, which yeah. whew, I've kind of like based parts of my life on that. Like if I feel like I'm in a business situation, I do try to think like, what would Julia Sugarbaker do? And I love when she tells people off. And I, Suzanne Sugarbaker is one of my favorite TV characters of all time. Regardless, there's one episode where Suzanne adopts a young girl who's probably around nine for good reasons, I guess, but she's not really suited to be anyone's mom or guardian figure. 
And one of the visual gags in the show is that she comes to work one day and she's dressed her adopted or like foster daughter in the same work outfit or like more formal outfit that she herself is wearing. So the visual gag is like, of course, you want to dress a nine year old like an adult. And yet here she is. So it's kind of weird that in this book, everyone's like, well, you know, I know in this time (laughs) children were sort of like adult juniors. But it feels weird. It doesn't feel great. No, and I feel like I'm not siding with Ben here, but it does feel a bit doing the most to not only go to this event, but replicate the governor's wife's outfit. It's true. It kind of reminds me, and this is going to shade some people, but I kind of don't care. Remember in the 90s, (laughs) there was this company called Laura Ashley? Yeah. And... I don't know if this was at the same time as Lily Pulitzer, but in my mind, they live in the same place. But Laura Ashley catalogs also came to my house. And it's like an ongoing joke with my mom and was then that Laura Ashley's whole thing was that you could get the same outfit your mom wore and you could match. And that always really tripped me out. I was just like, oh my God, like theoretically, my mom and I were both like rocking around in jeans and t-shirts. But the idea that we would sync up, like that's crazy to me. And meanwhile, Felicity's actual mother is like... Yeah, she's like not well. She's up like seeing figures in the wallpaper. And Felicity's like, anyway, are you done with my dress yet? (laughs) Should I get you some NyQuil? You you good? (laughs) It's the pestering that pushes her there. That's right. Um, I... I really fear for myself on these websites. I think I could get totally like caught up in. There's times when I do have to pull you back from things. And yeah. this may be one of those times where I basically just say like, I'm going to hold on to your credit cards for a little while. And, you know, when when things seem to have died down a little bit or you're in a better headspace, you know, we'll think about it. Well, I did want to share with you in a way other people have reacted to this book. We saw a really wide range on the first book when we looked up reviews and different things. And basically, not surprisingly, by book three, people kind of taper off in their level of interest in reviews. Um, But I kind of found one interesting. Rachel, 2018, cried. That's it? (laughs) That's it. But Wow. M.M. Strawberry says... One thing this book really helps to illustrate is that there was no mass production and ready-made items back then. If you didn't like a dress you had, oh well, suck it up, make it yourself, or hire someone to make it for you. All sewing was done by hand. It would be almost another century before the first sewing machine came out. And my response to that was, okay. Yeah. I I don't think that was actually the lesson. Yeah, that's... That's a strong response. That feels like someone who is having a bad day and or (laughs) has had, you know, some kind of like weird fight with their child about wanting some kind of nonsensical brand clothes. So literally the realm that I work in on a daily basis professionally is thinking and talking about things related to textiles history. And I didn't take it there. Right. This feels weird, but uh, I will I will say this, right? Like as a petiter person like I read that book and I weep at the thought that someone could customize all of my clothing right I mean yeah someone also sorry someone noted how great it was that she was invited to the dance by the mayor and I was like (laughs) oh you're not getting this but you're 11 so it's okay and she gave it a five out of five stars great book she also calls these books Da Bomb. So, I mean, it was a different time. Aww, she wrote this in 2000. That's great. I miss when people used to say that. Wow, I know. brave. Very brave. So, that's someone who's like a little bit younger than our peer. So, we can't shade too much. But Mm-mm. now, when we were talking about this, I don't know if you want to take it to this place, but you've recently been sort of obsessed with a story that's dropped into our lives or dropped out of our lives. (laughs) Wow. You know, let me just take it back for a second. So one thing I have not shared is that since we recorded episode two, I went to California on a work trip. Right before I left, another podcast, and I hate to advertise other podcasts on this one, but I will, called The Dropout, came into my life. Now, like many people, I had heard of Elizabeth Holmes, and I believe I had read a profile of her that appeared in The New Yorker some years ago about her company, Theranos, which claimed to be able to extract a pinprick of blood from a person's fingertip, and from that, do all the blood tests you would normally do from an intravenous 
blood draw. So this was set to change the world, according to Elizabeth Holmes. Okay, it changed my world. It didn't, let me be clear, this technology does not exist. Never existed. R.I.P. What does exist is a great podcast about this whole thing called The Dropout. Um, Also a book whose name I'm forgetting right now, but basically- Bad Blood. Bad Blood. A coworker lent me her copy of Bad Blood right before I went to California. I hate flying. I just want to say that. I hate flying. I'm terrified of it. I do it. But it's it's crazy and it turns into all kinds of weird rituals for me where it's like I need to hold someone's hand on takeoff or the plane's going to crash. I need to like have trash magazines that I can distract myself with. I had read my trash magazines. I'm on the second flight of a two-flight lag to California. The woman next to me is aggressively taking selfies for two-plus <laughs> hours. I love this that. woman never gets bored with herself. Honestly, I went from kind of shock and wonder to just pure awe. I was like, "What's you're finding like new stories to tell on your face? Like, are there, is the light <laughs> changing? Are you changing? I don't know. And I was trying to be like kind of cool about not staring at her, but it was really hard to look away. So anyway, while that's playing out next to me, I sit down and read Bad Blood. This book and this whole thing took me on such a tear. I can't even say, speaking of clothes, Elizabeth Holmes basically became obsessed with Steve Jobs and found out that Steve Jobs wore the same black mock neck every single day of his life by a particular Japanese designer. And... So she seeks out the same designer and starts wearing turtlenecks, the same different but black turtlenecks every day. She also purposefully drops the tone of her voice, perhaps to be taken more seriously in in a male-dominated business world, and dyes her hair blonde. It is wild. All of this stuff is absolutely insane. Basically, through a cult of personality, she was willing to, like, enable to peddle what she was told was a bad idea at the start into, like, a $6 billion business that all went away. Walgreens bought this technology and literally had centers in their stores. I would love to meet someone who's actually used one. And the machines that she built to read the blood draws never functioned properly. So they were low-key using regular blood machines back in their lab to do the reads. And when they used their machines, they were always off. So a woman went in and was like, you know, I'm getting a regular check-in to make sure that my cancer is in remission. The readings come back and say, oh, I'm so sorry, your cancer's back. That was completely false. Like all of this other, it's just like people are being hired and fired. What I cannot understand is why people are dying to work at Theranos. But by the end of reading this book, I was like, man, should I apply to work there? Like, I don't know. Like something happened to me. I don't know, Allison. That's all I really have to say about that. But you, I brought you on this journey with me. I don't know where you're at with that. So, I mean, I think something that's going to come up regularly, right, on this show is our sort of flirtation and interest with cults. Yeah, we we have like some, some more than others, but yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm we've said gonna... many times that we're prepared to be shakers if needs be. Yeah, I mean, that's like its own full episode where we get into that. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think if we're ever going to write some AG fan fiction or our own AG story, I would like it to be about a shaker girl story. We've unofficially copyrighted, trademarked, etc., all inclusive, the term photopia. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was years ago, but we have done that. That is ours. I mean, we're very interested in the ways that people kind of imagine and then build communities around fantasies of various kinds. I mean, American Girl is not unlike that. Like, we've already dedicated three hours plus just to intensively talking about a person who did not exist. Yeah. I mean, you could either say that we're in deep in our own intellectual development in life, or we're in too deep and we need some perhaps professional help. But I think for us, what we're really interested in, in part, is the ways that people map their own ideas and fantasies onto sometimes very real spaces, like historical sites. So you and I have gone on multiple trips to Shaker sites where people will show up. And this isn't just true of Shaker museums. It's all museums. And maybe folks have witnessed this. When you go to a history museum and you're with someone on a tour who admits they've never been there before and they know very little about the history the place represents, within 10 minutes, not going to stop them, within 10 minutes, they've become an instant expert and they're informing everyone else and helping them read the space that they're in as if they're an expert. And again, this gets back to clothes. Allison, I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, we've already alluded, but this is really the book where it comes out. Felicity just has this absolutely stunning red cape because it's wintertime. 
And, you know, the language, I forgot how beautiful it actually is, but they describe that she's in a silvery night, you know, as she leaves the ball. It's beautiful. And yeah, did I put on a cape at a certain local living history museum because it was out on a peg unattended? Yeah, I did. That was a wild time because I do not like the feeling of being in trouble. Like I partially don't care, but this, I don't like when someone makes a a huge fuss about something that couldn't matter less. This woman left her cape out on a hook in a living history museum in a home where everyone was encouraged to not only try on every piece of clothing in the space, but also use the furniture down to getting in straw beds, et cetera, et cetera, which honestly, that's vile. I don't even know who's doing that. But like there were people like rolling around in the bed, hanging out all over the furniture, trying on all this clothes. To me, the cape looked like it was part of the scene. The minute you whipped that cape on, I went to take your photo and we'll have to upload this photo. You looked in deep panic because the woman started yelling at you right as I took your picture. Yes. And that was rough. I mean, I hope Felicity never has to deal with that because that was sincerely rough. It was. And it's like, you know, she ultimately got what she wanted. She got the doll. She got the dress. Where's my wintertime amusements? Well, I was going to say, I mean, you may not have the amusements, but I think you could get a cape. I think you can can pull that off. Like, that's kind of back now. I think you could do that. You know I have a red cape. I do. And I just feel like maybe now's the time to, like, break that out again and just, you know, fill that gap that the winter amusements is never going to fill. That's so true. Now, the next time that we convene, we're going to answer a really important question. We know the answer. We're not going to divulge it yet. You know what I'm talking about. It's how the stars align. Yeah. So something that we both dabble in a little bit. And by in my case, it just means that I'm constantly defending my personality against the perceived traits of my sign um, is astrology. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to the bottom of what's Felicity's birthday. You can look it up. We know it too. You can look it up and you can get into it. But we're going to be bringing a lot of knowledge, a lot of heat, a lot of energy, intellect into what it means that she was born when she was born during happy birthday, Felicity. <sighs> This is going to be very loaded, and I just hope that, you know, book three, I feel like I've turned a corner with Felicity, and maybe I like her a little bit more, not sure, but I really just want to keep this train rolling, and I'm a little bit afraid that I'm going to find out some things about her based on her sign that I can't hang with, and it's not going to be, it's going to stop this progress that we have just as we're, like, you know, getting rolling. We're more than halfway through these books, and I'm nervous. Don't be nervous because we do have that knowledge of where she's coming from, what she's about. I think it's just all about us processing how her astrological identity fits in with everything else that we know. Okay, I'm really happy you said that because I hate when you read an astrological analysis and, you know, sometimes you can put one in with your friend and see like we've done one on this app that our friends told us about. And basically, it said that you and I are in danger of being friends because there there would be serious challenges there. And I immediately Did- deleted the app off my phone. <laughs> CoStar? We still have CoStar. Do we? You you literally had like a Leo fit and deleted it. Everyone else is still on it. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I will. See, this is what happens where I'm a Leo, as you noted, and I spend a lot of time defending myself against what Leos are assumed to be like. And, and you as, don't need to. I mean, as a very you. dear friend reminded us recently, you know, I was defending myself at a party about being a Leo and how I'm not dramatic. And then a moment later, I did threaten to jump out the window if someone refused to agree with me about Grey's Anatomy. And, you know, in my defense, we were on, we were on the first floor. So yeah. I think that's okay. I don't think it was that dramatic. Now, we just want to, we do want to be dramatic about this. We do really love hearing from you all so much and we hope that you'll reach out to us and we hope that you'll continue telling us about Felicity. We did a poll which came back with some some pretty shocking data, which is that our preliminary listeners are primarily Samantha people. So we need to kind of, you know, we might need to have like a weekend retreat about that and kind of deal with it, which I'm prepared to do. I I know you are too. I am. I'll buy some sage, whatever is needed. I'll do it. Yeah. I actually lit a throat chakra candle earlier. God bless. Which I've since left unattended, but. (laughs) Your house is rife with incense, candles left unattended, 
all kinds of stuff. It, you're like way more into sensory experience than I am. I don't really light a candle here. I'm lighting a candle for all the felicities that have come before us. Wow. I hope it's worth it is all I can say. So we're very excited. Please get in touch with us. I love hearing from people. People have been making me laugh so much this week, sending me all kinds of crazy stuff, both of us. So please keep that up. All of your theories, things that you're realizing about yourself, listening to the show and rereading the books with us. We genuinely love all of it. You're not the worst if you're Felicity. To our dear listener who asked that existential question, keep asking questions of yourself. But being any one of these doesn't make you the worst. But being a Molly does make you the best. (laughs) Allison, you're going to get us in so much trouble with that. And you know. know it. I know. Wow. So reach out to us. Where can we find you on all the socials, Mary? I can be found at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram and at Mary Mahoney123 on Twitter. And you can find me at Allison Horrocks on Twitter. You can also reach out to us on our Twitter account where we'd love to hear from you. Take one of our polls or just connect with us. We're at A Girls Pod there. And on Instagram, we can be found at Americans American Girls Podcast. And I'm just going to say this. It really helps people find our show. If you'd be willing to go on to your podcatcher of choice, whether it be iTunes or something else, and rate our show and write a review. I know that's a big Absolutely. ask because we all have busy lives and things to do and Theranos investigations to launch. But if you could take a second and do that, we would really, really appreciate it. We don't want this show to jump the shark, just to jump the fence. I, okay. (laughs) It's full circle. I take it. That is full circle. We will let Colin jump the fence and keep going because nobody cares. That's right. So until next time. I just want to give a quick shout out. Speaking of Colin, like if we can nominate an American girl of the week. Yeah, of of course. Of this episode, I just want to nominate and recognize once again, Allie Reisman, because... Colton once dated her and he's kind of portrayed her in weird ways on this show. And obviously she's not on it and can't defend herself, but I just have even more respect for her, not only for dealing with everything she's dealt with in her young life, but also for having the wherewithal to get away from Colton. God bless. You come out on top. 10 out of 10. You did. You get a 10. Thank you. (laughs) 